the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Well, my whole recollection was playing. We had a record out uh, on MCA Records, and we were going out and touring it. We uh, went over to England for an English part of the tour, and uh, a man in a suit, and he came back and very politely announced that there were some gentlemen that were here to see us. And would would we have them in? And we said, yeah, sure. And we expected it to be like, maybe like the promoter or something, you know. And here in walks the Clash and uh, and really really scruffy bunch, you know. And and I thought, wow, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna like these guys, man. <laughs> I was getting played on BBC Radio a song called She Never Spoke Spanish to Me. And I started talking with Strummer and he, you know, he kind of grew up a little part of his life in Spain and and he loved all the the border songs on country songs like Marty Robbins' Ballad of El Paso. And so he took to that song and uh, we just immediately got to talking about, uh, you know, about songs and poetry and they talked about Sonny Curtis and, you know, music from Texas songwriters and, you know, Buddy Holly. And he invited us out after the show to go out on the town and give us a tour of of London. And we hit uh, about half the pubs in town, I think, that night. And I just thought it was so strange for a band that, you know, came from England and a band that came from Lubbock, Texas, would have that much in common. But uh, it was surprising the amount of musical influences that we both had of the same nature, you know. I have always been grateful uh, for running into them and uh, them being uh, so generous to 
to go out on the road and play a bunch of shows together. That was uh, that was great fun. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 2 of The Opus, Lennon Calling by The Clash. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and uh, that was the great Texas country musician Joe Ely telling the story of what would be the start of a lifelong and somewhat improbable friendship between him and The Clash. The music you heard floating in and out in the background was a bootleg recording from 1985. Joe Strummer and some of his friends... Uh, busking <laughs> the Gateshead Station in London for beer money. You can find it on the internet, just look around. The story of the Clash's, shall we say, punk relationship with money is something that is really fascinating, but uh, we will talk about that in the last episode. Now, Joe Ely had no idea who the Clash were when they walked into his sound check in 1978, but they knew exactly who he was. Said they knew every word to his album. Now, Ely, he's a Texas honky-tonk legend. He's a brilliant songwriter. He's got an incredible voice. But even at his height, you know, we're, we're not talking Elton John here, you know? So it, like, it surprised the hell out of him that these scruffy-looking punks from London would even know who he was, let alone know every word to his songs. But this is the story that you get when you talk to Ely about The Clash, they were, first and foremost, obsessive music fans. In fact, on that first night they hung out, when they toured through half the bars in London, The Clash asked Ely if he could help them get shows in Texas. They wanted to see Texas. But <laughs> they didn't want to play Austin or Dallas or Houston. They wanted to play all the towns in Texas they knew from old Marty Robbins songs, from the Gunfighter Ballads. Now, Ely couldn't get any regular promoters to book this British punk band shows in West Texas. So he hooked him up with the only one who could, a rodeo promoter. And he got him four dates. We played, uh, oh, we played Laredo and uh, El Paso and <laughs> played, played Lubbock. They wanted to see where Buddy Holly came from. We set in with all the Mexican bands and that. In Warriors, which was a great border town at that time. We went over there and played all night. What did they think of of Juarez in West Texas? Oh, they loved it. We'd get up and just play in these takeover. The musicians loved to have people uh, just take over their instruments because they played six hours a night. They would like, yeah, you can sit in, of course, man. Please give me a break. <laughs> give me a break. My fingers are bleeding. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Strummer hired a uh, a walking, uh, you know, Maharachi band to follow us around while we were while we were going through the streets of uh, <laughs> Juarez. Everybody say, see, all right. And everybody say, what's he like? And everybody say, so 
Whenever he talks about the Clash's musical diversity, the first place they go, and often the only place they go, is the reggae and the dub, which is crucial to their history, but in my mind, does a bit of a disservice to the band. It makes them seem flat, like, uh, here are these British punks who grew up next door to the Rastas, and so they included some dub and some reggae and some ska in their music. There's more to it than that. It wasn't enough for the Clash to just borrow from these other cultures and genres. They wanted to live in them, see them firsthand, not just understand them musically so they could steal their secrets and move on. I mean, you could see this before London Calling in a song like White Man Hammersmith Palais. And Joe Strummer sings about going to his first reggae show and the things that he learned. And he went into this show with one idea about the music of the Rasta and how it related to their political struggle. And he walked out with all of his preconceived notions shattered. And he put it in a song for everybody to hear. He could have stayed in his punk clubs, listened to Don Letts play Dance Hall 45s, and felt educated and comfortable and enlightened. And instead, he went into the thick of it so he could learn. And that's why I love hearing Joe Ely tell these stories about them in Texas and Mexico. It's their curiosity and their excitement about music and culture and the people behind it. It was insatiable. And that's really rare. They weren't playing these shows to make money or build a fan base. This wasn't a promotional trip. There's no camera crew following them. And Lord knows their label didn't want them there. They were supposed to be in L.A. Meeting people, doing press, gearing up for their big Hollywood show. And instead, they're playing a high school gym in Laredo, Texas. <laughs> with their new buddy Joe Ely opening up for them. I mean, on a personal note, as a musician who has spent a great deal of his career touring in places that weren't going to make him any money, it's... <laughs> That's no way to run a business. It's no way to get rich. God, it's the only way to live, man. <laughs> well, speaking of the road less traveled, and while we're still on Joe Ely, I got a segue for just a second. This has nothing to do with London Calling. It is totally off topic, but this is my podcast. I don't care. The story is great. I want y'all to hear it, and we'll get right back on track after it's done. I promise. Can you tell me tell me really quickly the story about the line split in Should I Stay or Should I Go? Oh, that's, that's so funny. Because uh, nobody could have ever guessed what it was. But we were recording Should I Stay or Should I Go? And, and Joe, me and Joe were sharing a microphone. And uh, Mick was singing. And right in the middle of the song, Joe kind of kind of winked and, and kind of pointed for me to come over and follow him. And so we went down to the other part of the studio and came in behind Mick's vocal booth. And he was singing uh, right after the first part of the song. And he, we'd jump out at him and just scare him to death. And, uh, and he just just kind of squares off and turns around and just says, split! And <laughs> we just died laughing and went back over and finished the song. But he was really, truly, truly pissed off that we had jumped out at him. And, but we all had a good laugh out of it after, after the song was recorded. <laughs> that is the story. 
That is credibility. God. I love this story for two reasons. One, because everyone's heard this song. And everyone knows that part where Mick shouts, Split! You've heard this song more than once, which everyone has. You probably shout that line with him and have had no idea why for years until now. You're welcome. The second reason I love this song is that it's Mick that does the heavy lifting and the producing and the arranging these records. He was the guy ripping the Velcro at the start of Guns of Bricks, and he's the details guy. So for as pissed as he was when it happened, it was probably ultimately his call to keep it in the song. Which really says something about the way they made records, doesn't it? There are no rules. You do what you want. And in the end, all that matters is does it work in the song? Does it feel right? Does it feel real? They can make a dub song or a jazz song or whatever the hell Lover's Rock is, and it doesn't matter. And that is what makes them punk. With The Clash, this cultural curiosity, this devotion to discovery, it didn't just end when the recording was done. It was totally pervasive in every aspect of their career. I was up late the other night. I was Googling images of ticket stubs from Clash concerts because that's the kind of sick shit I'm into. And I found one. It had the you know Clash listed on the top and then the opening act listed underneath the Clash. And it was Sam and Dave. Like, soul man, hold on, I'm coming. You know, soul music legends, Sam and Dave, opening up for the Clash. A thing to bear in mind, this is the late 70s. Sam and Dave's heyday was a full decade before. This isn't Katy Perry bringing Amigos out at Super Bowl halftime show. This isn't Brand synergies aligning to increase market share. Bringing Sam and Dave to open up their show in New York City wasn't some move to suck some power or credibility or fan base from someone else. This was the clash using their own power to pay respect. Plus, I'm sure they just wanted to see Sam and Dave live. And Sam and Dave wasn't an isolated incident. They had Bo Diddley open up for him. Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Slits, of course, Joe Ely. This is what they did once they had the power to do it. Man, I think that that's what great artists and great bands do. This is Fat Tony. He's a rapper from Houston, now living in Brooklyn. I loved talking to him. He grew up living in rap music in Houston, but at the same time was listening to lots of punk and country and reggae. He's just got a, a super deep and really interesting knowledge of music. They put the audience on to some new shit. Any artist that I hold up to a high standard has done the same thing. From Prince to Rolling Stones. I think the class coming to the U.S. and having some new rap groups open up for them and have some classic stars like Bo Diddley open up for them, they're just coming through the show and they respect 
great music and they give it a platform. I think any artist that hasn't had one inkling of doing that, even if it's opening up for a small tour or a big tour or just a couple shows or just posting about another artist that they think is the shit, anyone that doesn't do that, then I really let you status in my book. You have to put folks on. It's part of the gig. love this they're drawing from all over the world from everything they love without a concern for what sells it's just what they think is cool and it's showing up on their albums it's showing up on the stage I mean, it's, it's even showing up in their clothes they hired a friend of theirs alex michonne to make clothes for them and when she asked them what they wanted they told her to watch this movie the battle of algiers it's this Italian neorealist historical war film set in Algeria. It's scored by Ennio Morricone. It is great. You could totally see their style in there. It's on YouTube. Go look it up. Again and again and again. They're doing this. They're wearing their influences on their sleeve. And you see this too on the album art for London Calling. But with a bit of a twist. Everyone knows the iconic image of Paul Simonon smashing his bass guitar on stage in New York City. It is one of the most famous photos in rock and roll history. But what you may not know is the significance of the typeface and the layout of the title on the front of the record. Go look it up. Look up the album cover of London Calling. And then look up Elvis Presley's self-titled debut record from 1956. You see? They are exactly the same. I've been listening to London Calling since I was probably eight years old, and I didn't learn this until just a few years ago. They just lifted that same typeface and the same layout running down the left side of the record and along the bottom of the record, over top that black and white image of Elvis playing a guitar, and they put it over their own black and white image of Paul smashing a guitar. That lift in typography was meant as an homage to, to Elvis. This is my buddy Vance Wallenstein. He's the head of design for MoMA at the PS1. Uh, fantastic commercial graphic designer, a visiting professor at the Pratt Institute, and an old punk. But I think later, at least for me personally, it kind of feels actually much more of a reaction in that, you know, Elvis Presley encapsulated this sort of the ability to like over commercialize yourself and really allow yourself to become a commodity and play the game in a way that the clash were not interested in doing. So to have that lift as an homage, I actually see much more as a reaction. And then of course you have the black and white image of Elvis playing the guitar and it's, he's got a smile on his face and it's energetic, but just over 20 years later, you essentially have Paul smashing a guitar which is such an interesting contrast. I think when talking about like kind of the commercialization of these movements, you know, the reference to like Beatlemania, you know, that quote on London Calling is also in reference to the over-commercialization, the stylization, the, the making fashionable of punk rock. I think this is an important distinction to make with The Clash because it's the thing that makes them and London Calling so exceptional. They're taking all this knowledge they have, everything that they've gained from their lives, devouring history and diving into other cultures, but they aren't just using it to you know, celebrate in some schlocky, we are the world moment. And they aren't 
you know, the sex pistols, looking to just burn everything down to the ashes. They're using that knowledge to make calculated criticism and commentary. And the fact that it extends to the cover art and the way they tour and the way they dress, you know, this all gets back to that Camus quote from the first episode about a life lived free being the greatest act of rebellion. It shows that they understand the power that they have, the platform they've been given, the responsibility that that requires. And the revolution comes in many forms, great and small. There's a contemporary issue that I think needs to be discussed with this album. Something that I was curious about and felt perhaps as a lifelong Clash fan, I may not be totally objective on. You have these four white British guys borrowing tons of musical genres and clothing styles, even album artwork, from a lot of cultures and communities that are not their own. It made me wonder, is this cultural appropriation? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's not. This is Shadeen Taylor-Stone. She's a producer, writer, activist. She's won countless awards for her work for LGBTQ rights, for women's rights, for organizations supporting black women and girls. She has a great TED Talk about how punk and alternative music led her to a life of political action. Uh, and she also plays drums in a super sick punk band called Big Joni. What I loved about talking to Shadeen is that she knows what she's talking about and she's not afraid to say it. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes this cultural appropriation thing gets a bit silly. But I, you don't see the Clash weren't exactly, they took elements of reggae and style and whatever and put them in their, their songs. You know, they did Please and Thieves, etc. as a cover. But there's not a problem with that. The thing is, when it comes to music, I think too often people can get into this idea that there's, you know, even like the notion of black and white music I'm not comfortable with because someone could say the Joni's playing white music. What does that even mean? When we're dealing with uh, music that's rooted essentially in blues chords, that makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think that notion should be applied to music. Only when you get like those kind of things where that sort of kind of Taylor Swift thing or that Miley Cyrus thing where it's like you're kind of kind of purposely using a type of music because you think it does something to your image. And usually underlying that is a kind of racist ideas around tropes around black people and sexuality and hip hop and all that kind of stuff. But if you're just incorporating elements into your music because you like it. I don't really see an issue with that. I asked everyone I talked to this question, and everyone said no. My favorite answer, other than Shadeen's, uh, no, was from Joseph Patel. You may remember him very briefly from the first episode. He used one of my favorite people to talk to this season, and you will hear from him again in the third episode. <laughs> he just had a very simple way of putting it. Uh, personal rule, if you will. There's this idea with cultural appropriation. For me, it's like, if you're going to take something off the shelf, put something back. <laughs> you know? It's like, if you're going to take something off the shelf, 
put something back. And so if the Clash were influenced by blues and reggae and and other genres of music, you saw what they did was that they they took some of those artists, they included them in, in their success. You know, you heard them talk about it in interviews so that you know, fans of their of their music could then discover new artists that maybe they didn't understand or didn't know about. Fucking Bo Diddley, right? He's one of the greatest musicians of all time. But at the time, the Clash is a big is our big group, and so they they bring him to open up for him. And I think that's that's the way to do it. And again, I go back to that idea of mixing in genres and and mixing in influences actually creates more interesting music. And I think that that the Clash made music that expanded what punk rock could sound like. And I think that in turn changes the definition of what punk rock is. And I think, again, only the most important bands and only the most important albums and only the most important music can do that. Take something off the shelf, put something back. Man, if that ain't worth to live by, I don't know what is. <laughs> what they put back was all of those things that Joseph covered and what Fat Tony was talking about, you know, supporting the artists that influence you. But most importantly, it was this album, London Calling. This album that we've heard guest after guest talk about the way it's impacted them, the way it's moved culture, the education it gave them, that is putting something back on the damn shelf. Well, they're one great example of, of a band that can do that well. That voice right there is Britt Daniel, the lead singer and guitarist from the incredible band Spoon, a band that is most assuredly a rock band, but over the two decades of existence has continued to experiment and push the boundaries of what a rock band can be. And I asked him if he had gotten any of that from a life of listening to The Clash. You know, I always had a soft spot for, for albums that go to a lot of different places, like London Calling, like The White Album, Exile on Main Street, those kind of records that really hard to pin them down. Because, I mean, because at this point, The Clash were, of course, punk because of where they came from and their attitude and their take on current events and current culture. You could probably say their look was punk though who cares and and it'd be hard to describe the first two clash albums as anything but punk but it's hard to find a unifying genre for london calling i mean to me i just got to call it a genius rock record so yeah maybe maybe i did get that i, I don't know if you'd call it experimental but sort of uh, open-minded um approach to making an album that is putting something back on the shelf by making music that changes music, that makes other musicians want to make music that also changes music. And the thing that's been so beautiful about researching this episode especially was the diversity of people that I talked to that all said the exact same thing. London Calling specifically, but The Clash in general, play a big role in like playing inspirations from all kinds of music. This is Yeek. He's a Filipino-American kid from South Florida, now transplanted to L.A., making some great music that is really representative of what I see as a very exciting shift in music today. You know, kids that are making music now, they're totally unconcerned with genre. You have artists on an indie level like Slow Tie, 
Dominic Fick, Tierra Wack, and Yeek that are making music that could be rap or it could be R&B or it could be dance music or it could even be rock music depending on what song you hear or even what part of a song you hear. And that's even trickling to a big pop level with artists like Frank Ocean and Billie Eilish, Tyler the Creator, or Jay Balvin. They're all blowing the doors off the concept of genre. So much so that not having a genre is becoming its own genre. I guess the term they try to use is like a genreless, but like like it's a new thing, but I feel like the clash is definitely like a representation that it's been happening for decades, you know, it's not something that's new. You know, because that's like from late seventies <clears throat> and older music. But that was a band that inspired me to just be like, all right, I can make any kind of music I want because they, they made music from rockabilly to punk to rock and roll to soul to even their influence in dub inspired me a lot. What a through line. A record made by four British dudes in 1979 still out here teaching the youth. And while Yeek knows about The Clash and studies The Clash, you have to think there are a lot of great artists his age that don't. But all of them, making their music without a genre, whether they know about The Clash or not, are part of the same continuum. A continuum that did not start with The Clash, I grant, but most certainly was pushed forward at light speed the day London Calling came out. There is no genreless music genre today without The Clash making their genreless album back in 1979. And the most amazing part, like all things regarding this great band, the influence does not stop with the art. So, next week, on our final installment of this season of The Opus, we take a look at the political legacy of The Clash and how their music, their work, and their lives are still shaping social change and political action today. Spanish songs in Andalusia The shooting in the days of 39 Oh, please leave the vendetta I'd like to thank my guests, Joe Ely, the great Joe Ely, Fat Tony, Britt Daniel Spoon, Shadeen Taylor-Stone of Big Joni, and Yeek. All of them great musicians doing great work. Be sure to give them a listen. Also, I want to thank Vance Wallenstein of the MoMA at PS1 for his advice about the album artwork, and of course, filmmaker Joseph Patel. You're probably going to hear from some of these great folks again next week, plus a lot, a lot more. Really excited about that one. Over Consequence, they're giving away a fantastic London Calling prize bundle. Still can win tons of great stuff, plus that uh, scrapbook that I talked about in last week's episode. I've actually used it quite a lot in researching for this series since I got it. It's pretty beautiful. So head on over to consequencesound.net, search for The Clash to enter. If you need a break from listening to London Calling, which I will never understand, might I suggest you go to your Google machines and uh, search for Joe Strummer's BBC World Service radio show called London Calling. Each episode is him bringing in his own personal record collection and playing some of his favorite records from all over the world. You get country, you get uh, Saharan blues, you get reggae. It's really incredible glimpse into the inspiration for this band, this record, and their lives. Last but not least, if you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, Rate, review, tell your friends. It really does help us a great deal. And I want to keep doing this forever. And the only way that'll happen is if everybody tells everybody. So do me a favor and tell somebody. And with that, I'm out. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And this 
is the opus. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tullis, founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast.